0: Welcome to a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. So on this episode of the podcast, we share a recording from our ongoing faculty spotlight series, Office Hours. This is a live interview with Professor Dan Murphy. He's a Global Economies and Markets faculty member He joined us for Office Hours to share more about his story, his background, what led him to Darden, what he's researching and passionate about right now, and so much more. I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dan Murphy. Dan, thank you for sharing some time out of your Friday. Uh, no, thanks that. for
1: having me. I'm thrilled to be able to, to talk to prospective students and, and you, Brett.
0: Well, we are in two of the corners of the Darden universe. I'm sitting here in Roslyn, Sam's Family Grounds, the base location for our executive MBA program, part-time MBA, as well as our one-year specialized master's. I think you're down, down in Charlottesville today.
1: That's right, down in Charlottesville.
0: All right, well, let's kick things off of the same first question that we ask of everybody here on Office Hours, tell us a little bit more about you and, and your background.
1: Yeah, well, I, uh, thanks, Brett. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Um, and after college, I, I went to Washington, DC. I, I worked there for a while, both uh, as a Congressional Hunger Fellow, and then at the Urban Institute as a research associate. Um, and, and the broad, like what pulled me there was sort of just questions about, um, society like why does society look the way it does why are resources allocated the way they are Um, and I was trying to decide you know what to do after that what you know I thought about going to medical school I thought about some other things and at the end of the day I wanted to be a social scientist and so I ended up getting my PhD in economics Uh, I spent six years in Ann Arbor Michigan and then came here in about 2013 so I've been here ever since then
0: so you mentioned going to D.C. Um, after after graduating. Did you know that that was a path you were going to pursue when you were in college? Did you have a hunch that you were going to move to D.C. and kind of think about these society questions?
1: I always. I don't know if I had a hunch. I started off as a biochemist, as a biochemistry major. Um because there were other things that I was somewhat interested, but at the end of the day, I always had this this sort of sociologist bent, so to speak, or a you know a social scientist bent. And so it wasn't until about my junior or senior year in, in in college that I I really started diving into economics and math. And then at that point, I knew I wanted to come to DC and work on policy issues.
0: That arc, though, from biochemistry to to policy issues, um, that's interesting. Might might resonate with some of our attendees today.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I was curious about, this sounds uh, a bit too ambitious at the time. I was curious about free will going into college, and I thought if I studied biochemistry, maybe I'd learn something about that. Um, it turns out I realized I was just in a lab dealing with formaldehyde, and I was pretty terrible at labs. And so from there, I switched to math because I like thinking about things, but, but having to do the labs, I was just awful at it. Uh, and then I can kind of combine the math with sort of the, the more social scientist aspect of what I like to do. And so that's what kind of that's how I switch direction. Well,
0: we're going to come back to your time in D.C., your work as a Hunger Fellow and, and time at the Urban Institute. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about what you teach at Dart. So we talked about you being a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty. Uh, what do you teach here?
1: So broadly, the global economies and markets area focuses on macroeconomics. And I think that's kind of what distinguishes us from, from other business schools. When there are economics groups within a lot of other business schools, they'll focus more on microeconomics. Whereas at Darden, a lot of other areas cover the microeconomics. You'll see that in marketing, decision analysis, finance, et cetera. We focus on how do we think about how everything fits together? How do you aggregate up the decisions of different firms and households? And how are all those decisions interrelated? And so. What we give students, what we do in, in in class, is we give students a framework for thinking about how GDP, inflation, interest rates, exchange rates, capital flows are all interconnected. Um, and so I teach in the core in core gem. We have uh, the first half of what we teach focuses more on closed economy macroeconomics, GDP, inflation, unemployment, and then the second half we talk about exchange trade, capital flows, international trade. And then I've got an elective called Markets, Government, and Society. Uh, and, and the basic focus of that class starts with the premise, under what conditions uh, is the free market efficient? Under what conditions is free market optimal and, and what does that mean? And then we talk about different aspects of reality such that there might be a rationale for government intervention. And then we think about different government interventions and to, to see if they're actually effective at addressing whatever issues there might be and what other sort of unintended consequences there might be. So that's broadly what I teach.
0: We're going to come back to uh, both the gym class, the Global Economies and Markets class, and uh, that elective that you mentioned, and maybe also another elective a little bit later in the conversation. Um, but what brought you to Darden? One of the fun things about these sessions is very similar to our prospective students who may be thinking about their destinations. Faculty also kind of go through a similar decision where they, they, they choose uh, to, to be here and weigh different things. What, what brought you to Darden?
1: Uh do you want the long or short answer to that question?
0: I think we can take the long answer here. All right, all I'll give you a me-
1: yeah, I'll give you a the relatively long. So I got my PhD in economics and public policy from the University of Michigan. And I thought that I was going to focus on education policy when I went in, just because I thought education is an important topic and it, it has so many implications. And I fell in love with macroeconomics when I got to Michigan. I started my PhD in 2007 and... The way macroeconomics was being taught, in my mind, was, uh, I thought there were some restri- restrictive aspects of it, and and I had views of the world that were not quite consistent with the, the models we were being taught, and I saw that as an opportunity to maybe do some research in that area and think about things a little bit differently. And so that's what kind of got me into macroeconomics, and at the time, the financial crisis was happening, and so the implications of the macroeconomy or how relevant it was were were. Quite clear, you know, and, and, and kind of affecting the lives of so many people. And so that really kind of pushed me in that direction. When I got out of Michigan, um, Darden was a unique place in that it had a focus on macroeconomics. But I think they also cared about my other background with the National Hunger Fellowship. That You know, it seemed to me that Darden was a place that cared about three things like business, uh, macroeconomics, and society. Three of the things that were kind of top of my mind and so in that sense it was a great fit and also the way that darden teaches and the way that they structure classes was very consistent with the style that i liked and that i thought was most effective and so in that sense it was it was it was just a, a very fortunate match i guess that wasn't too long of an answer
0: well long answers are okay on office hours and one of the fun things is just to kind of hear um, people reflect on this decision and, and what mattered to you as as you came to darden um, as I mentioned, it has this kind of parallel aspect to our prospective students in as they weigh weigh MBA yep. options. So, um, talk a little bit more about how you like to teach, because I think that's also been something that we've touched on with faculty. And you mentioned the teaching style and approach here at Darton resonating with you. Uh, what's what's your preferred style?
1: Well, maybe uh, first uh, I'll talk about how how I perceive a lot of economics classes are taught, and then I'll talk about what's different about how we teach at Darton. So, the way I saw a lot of instruction in economics was, here are a bunch of curves and graphs, you kind of memorize them, you shift some curves, you memorize stuff, you regurgitate it for a test, and then you kind of forget what it actually all meant at the end of the day. Um, Whereas I think that if we think about the curves and graphs and models that we try to teach in economics, they serve a purpose. They're, They're basically an analogy or metaphor for the world. And at Darden, we really focus on the intuition, both the intuition behind that metaphor and how it maps into reality. And I think that's what's really unique. So just in terms of content and the focus of, of, the, of the class, that you know, I think that's unique and, and I think pretty useful. And then the other aspect of what we do at Darden is how we actually engage in the classroom. And what I like about Darden is students are expected to prepare and read material ahead of time. What I noticed at Michigan with a lot of undergrads, and I also taught master's in public policy students, a lot of times they would come to class just hoping to, you know, see for the first time whatever the instructor kind of lectures them on. They jot down what they need to know for the test and then right before the test they cram. And it seemed to me like that was an inefficient use of everybody's time. Uh, When when students first present themselves with the material ahead of time, they struggle with it themselves. And then they come into the classroom and discuss, they already have that baseline. They already have quite, you know, they don't know everything. You don't absorb everything, but at least you have some questions and you're, you're not just trying to take notes so that you can read it later. You've read it ahead of time. You come in and you're ready to engage. And then as you ask questions of classmates and hear other classmates' perspectives, some of your questions get answered. You have the opportunity to try and articulate your own thoughts to other classmates. And so you're learning two things at the same time. One, you're learning economics, uh, but you're also learning how to articulate your thoughts, ask questions, gain knowledge and also share knowledge. And and that to me is is the beauty of the, the Darden Classroom.
0: I really appreciate that point because it actually aligns with something that we got here in the Q&A. And so one of the common prospective student questions, you know, Darden has a core curriculum and no one places out of these classes. And so sometimes we'll see people uh, with econ majors or backgrounds in some of the areas, accounting, finance. Um, And the question we get is how are business school graduate level courses different than undergrad courses? Do you have a perspective on uh, it sounds like you, you, you do on how a graduate level business school at Darden economics course uh, is different than an undergrad course.
1: I think, uh, yeah, once you get here, uh, students will learn very quickly. It's quite different. I, you know, some of the models share similarities to what we might teach to undergrads, but we do a lot more of it. So, so there are two ways in which it's different. One is we'll do in about three days what an undergraduate class would do in a semester in terms of building up the model. And so once we have that framework, we then apply it in a whole bunch of different contexts. So we'll have a model of the macro economy and we'll use that model to think about who, what is the central bank? What are their objectives? What are they doing? When there's a debate over government spending and infrastructure uh, structure packages and government debt, we have a framework to think about that. And that'll be a case that we talk about. We have a case on the financial crisis and we'll run that through our model. And so we, we really condense uh, the building up of the model. Like I said, in an undergrad, the model might be a little bit simpler and it'll be done over a semester. Here it's gonna be a bit more condensed and then we start to apply it through a bunch of real world examples. Um, and, and consistently we hear from students that, that what they get out of a semester or even a quarter here is far above and beyond what they, what they would have gotten out of say an undergrad class. So I think that's, that's one of the key differences. It's not easy, I'll, I'll say that. Like you, you have to come prepared to work and prepared to really try Um, But I think the environment is there to support that.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I think that we always try to emphasize from the admissions perspective is, you're not not doing this on your own. There are a tremendous number of resources uh, available to support students as they go through the first year in particular, but throughout your time here at Darden, and those resources actually... Open up prior to the start of school, like pre-matriculation. I mean, students have access to massive open online courses. Be ready, which is a Darden product, help students you know explore a little bit more of that sort of application of uh, technical quantitative concepts. There's Darden before Darden. You have a learning team. You have second-year tutors. Clubs and organizations will oftentimes provide help and support for students as they learn a little bit more of you know about these topics and maybe struggle with the material a bit. Uh, you're not on your own. I think that's a really important point uh, for prospective students to know here at Darden. Um, let's talk a little bit more about in the classroom. So you you, this, you spoke about this really intentional choice coming here because of the way that uh, the classes were taught. What do, you, what do you enjoy about teaching beyond just the level of preparation that you see from the students? Um, what's energizing to you about those, those class discussions?
1: I love interacting with the students. I love it when I can see students Kind of, well, they're, maybe this will address different groups of prospective students. So some prospective students, and this is what I actually love about teaching, will come in and they'll say, I've never seen econ. I never wanted to take economics. I'm intimidated by economics. And we have a big chunk of students in the classroom from that background. And then there are students that worked in finance or have taken a lot of economics before um, and maybe do, or maybe don't, you know, have really absorbed what they, what they took before. We put them all together. And from the first group of students, the ones that, you know, feel like I've never taken economics before. I don't know, you know, what's going on. Seeing them able to to understand the framework uh, and and, kind of come out of, you know, maybe that to blossom in some sense and say like, wow, I can actually see how all of these things fit together. Now, when I go home and I talk to my family over Thanksgiving, I am actually able to not only contribute to the conversation, but add a whole lot that, you know, maybe my parents or my siblings like didn't understand Um, and and seeing people feel like they had no place in that conversation to all of a sudden being leaders in that conversation uh, is one thing that I absolutely love because I think that at the end of the day, economics is ultimately accessible. It's not always taught in a way that's accessible or intuitive, but I think at Darden, we really emphasize that. And so students then, you know, are are able to come and walk away with with, with that deeper understanding. So that group of students that never seen economics before, what I love, as a teacher is seeing them kind of come in come into that that ability and then for the other group of students that had taken economics before worked in finance a lot of times what they get out of the classroom above i think deepening their understanding is also an ability to articulate what they think they know to other students and so a lot of times what will happen in the darting classroom you know i'll say you know jennifer you worked in finance you know what do you think and she'll try to explain it to Bob who hadn't worked in finance. And at first, Jennifer will maybe use jargon or in a way that like Bob's like, I didn't understand that at all. And then Jennifer has to go back and find a new way to explain it. And that through that conversation, um, Bob learns, you know, about how the macroeconomy works. Jennifer learns how to articulate uh, her thoughts and how to actually explain things. And I think that actually deepens her understanding as well. And so I love, in an ideal world, I step back and the students kind of come to this on their own. It usually takes... You know that doesn't happen on on day one, but that's the aspiration. And when I do observe that in class, um, that's a great feeling.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that. So the first office hours conversation we had was with was with Rich Evans, a member of the finance faculty here. He said the exact same thing. Really? That yeah. In the best class conversations, he's gradually moving moving out of the way, the students are talking to each other to almost, he's just uh, a person in the room and the students are really having the conversations. It's fascinating to hear you both say that. Yeah. So I want to come back to your PhD work. You were focused on econ and public policy. The public policy thing has been a pretty consistent thread through your story, you know, going going to DC, being interested in these kinds of societal questions, uh, including that in your, your PhD focus. What do you enjoy uh, about Public policy?
1: Maybe um, that's a deeper question about, you know, maybe my upbringing or my personality or something like that. I mean, uh, why, why did I choose to pursue that? Why do I care? I think that thinking about social issues is, is just something that was ingrained in me from, from a young age, uh, both just in what I observed growing up and kind of the values that that I, that I inherited. And so public policy is the ability to think about those. And there are many different ways to think about it. You could be a scientist, you could be, you could be a business, you know, you, there are lots of ways to do it. But for me, public policy, studying public policy and macroeconomic policy was, was kind of the path that I ultimately went down. That's why I like it. Um, you, you think about more than just how does one policy affect me or, or you know, my, my income or this or that. It gives you the chance to think more broadly how does it affect my neighbors how does it affect somebody else across the globe and then how do we find the best set of policies that that makes us all kind of better off in some sense
0: we'd gotten a question in the q a about your work as a national hunger fellow Uh, what attracted you to that that fellowship and you know what was that experience like
1: yeah so you know maybe to answer that question i think i'd have to start even earlier on. Um, where I grew up in Denver I went to East High School and East High School was on the east side of Denver and it straddled uh, both a very low-income neighborhood to the north of east and the country club neighborhood to the south of east um, and I lived in neither of those but, but going to that school you know you constantly see lots lots of disparities in terms of where people came in you know some students would come into the classroom and they hadn't had breakfast that morning and you know like they were working in the afternoon so it was harder to do to do their schoolwork whereas other students had nicer internships and you know got to spend their days at the country club um, I was in either of those camps I, I worked my butt off over the summertime I started as a janitor I then worked as a bank teller my foray into business I started a business painting addresses on sidewalks trying to convince people that you know the ambulance couldn't see their address if they didn't have it painted there um, but I was working a lot and a lot of my friends were in that same sort of boat and so that just brought up questions like, "Hey, why are some of us working in the summer times? Why are some of us not? Um, you know, and and how does this all get decided in some sense?" So that was just, you know, my high school. That those questions loomed incredibly large. Um, and once I kind of broke out, you know, stopped, left that biochemistry path. Those were the questions that I started to pursue. And so the National Hunger Fellowship was kind of a natural way to do that. Once you go to college. To the extent you study these things, it's at a very academic level, a textbook level in some sense. And so, yeah, you can learn some theories or something like that. Uh, But the Hunger Fellowship was designed in a way such that you got two new pieces of knowledge. One was anecdotal evidence by working out in the field. So you spend the first six months somewhere in the country doing hunger-related policy work. And that could be housing, that could be food security. For me, I was doing food security issues in Florida uh, which focus both on food stamps, but also school uh, breakfast and lunch inside the school. Um, and then you spend six months in D.C. looking at how policies are actually made. And so that's what attracted me to the Hunger Fellowship. And then the third stool of that is kind of research, like how do you actually look at data and examine data? And that's kind of what I do for my life now. But I think it was nice to have both more anecdotal evidence from that fellowship Plus, also seeing how the the sausage is made in Washington, D.C., so to
0: speak. What did you what were your key takeaways? I mean, anything that still stays with you from that time uh, in as a Hunger Fellow?
1: Yeah, I think that I took away both a deeper understanding of what some social programs do for people and mean for people, how important they are. When I was in Tallahassee, it was right after a hurricane had come through and just wiped out a ton of Florida. This was in 2004, so it was before Hurricane Katrina had taken out New Orleans, Orleans, but Florida had gotten hit pretty hard. And I was helping field calls for emergency food stamps. Uh, And there were just a lot of people that are like, look, I had a freezer's worth of food that was going to hold me over the next month. It got completely wiped out because we lost electricity. I just need something to hold me over. Uh, and you, I could see the role of, of kind of this social insurance and how important it was for people. At the same time, I learned a lot about people's perspectives of why they didn't want to pay for these social programs. Um, and so, and, and how, you know, advocacy works and how a whole bunch of other things like kind of get merged into forming what the social safety net is that we actually have. So if I learned anything, it was a, a deeper perspective on the value of, of these programs, but also why, you know, People struggle or don't want to pay for them, um, among other things. I guess I would say.
0: Well, let's let's start to get into a little bit about what you're teaching here at Darden. Um, so we m- mentioned the global economies and markets class. You talked about how that kind of fits within within the broader broader framework. One of the things that's come up here in the Q and A. I mean, so we have this required core curriculum. It's a general management program. How do you think econ helps people who go forward into all sorts of careers, right? Financial services, tech, consulting. You know, what do you want students to carry forward with them as they move forward in their careers?
1: I think we do at least two things that are helpful for them in their careers. One is we provide them an understanding of the environment in which they're going to work. Like the macro environment around you has a lot of implications for your household, your firm. And if you understand that environment, if you understand what the central bank is doing, you understand what you know your borrowing costs are going to be. If you understand macroeconomic trends, you understand what sort of wages you're going to have to pay. You, you understand what your revenues are going to be. And so we give them this broader understanding of of this bigger macro environment that is crucially uh, important for firms. So that's one. I think the other is, just the logic of economics is, is just a skill or a tool set that it's helpful for people to have. Understanding cause and effect, understanding you know, how one thing over here affects different things over here, and sometimes relationships are interdependent, and macroeconomics gives you a way of, of analyzing these interdependencies that you might encounter in other contexts in life, not necessarily when thinking about the macroeconomic. We help students organize their thoughts in a very particular way maybe that's the succinct way of putting it.
0: So you have a policy background, think about these kind of questions, and you're also around MBAs and business school environment. Um, We have hosted over the past, I'd say, four years, this ongoing conversation, part of a webinar that we actually have coming up in mid-November about the value of an MBA for policy professionals. And we have alumni come and Um, join us for that conversation. They share their perspective, but I wonder if you have a perspective on how business training and MBA can be helpful to someone uh, who works in policy.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I think that there are a lot of general skills that we help develop both an ability to articulate your thoughts and ability to work with other people. Um, But if you're working at policy and business are interrelated. Um, And so for me, I came from an economics department at a policy school, and I always thought I need more business uh, because, at the end of the day, the way businesses function determine how policies are going to get implemented and the effects of different policies. So, uh, I think from a you know from a policy pers- professionals perspective, the concepts and, and 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 the things taught in a business school are directly re- related. A lot of policy schools will focus on uh, some some unique skills within policy, like uh, data skills, data data skills, managing data sets so you can evaluate programs and things like that. We businesses do that too. We teach those things, sort of things here as well. So a lot of what you might get in the policy environment, you're also going to get an MBA. But then you're also going to learn about finance. You're going to learn about accounting, and you're going to learn about the macro economy, um, which I think there are so many contexts in life, whether it's policy or business administration, where that's going to be relevant. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's a
0: no, hundred percent. I mean, what we hear from the students and alumni on, on that session uh, is oftentimes it, it allows them to speak to multiple audiences, right? They understand the business perspective. They understand the policy perspective, perhaps because of their own background and, and professional training. Uh, and now they can be a translator. They can bring a perspective that maybe is a bit underrepresented in the policy area, that business viewpoint. They can they can advocate and sort of share that perspective. Uh, it's pretty it creates a lot of versatility. Is what we I would hear agree. From, hear from yeah, students. without a doubt. All right. Well, let's talk about your elective. You mentioned this uh, government and markets elective. Um, what was the inspiration for this elective? And and tell us a little bit more about this class.
1: In some sense, the inspiration were questions that have been on my mind ever since high school, and then that hunger fellowship. You know, the sort of question of like, what should the role of government be in out helping to allocate resources um, in, in in our lives in general. And in some sense, it's a politically charged topic. And I found that a lot of people's answers to those questions depend on maybe in some sense, what tribe they put themselves in the first place. And what I've tried to do with my own self is, is step back from kind of this team oriented view of whether I believe the government should do one thing or another and start with first principles, like what are my values? And then based on those values, what do we know about the effects of different government interventions? like what's just the evidence tell us about what would be accomplished and what wouldn't. And then once we know that, which is hard to know, that's what researchers are doing all the time and aggregating all of that is tough. And so because we can't process all this information, we tend to maybe orient ourselves towards, towards evidence that appeals more likely to us in the first place. And I think the role of academics is to try and um, try and step back and, and take a more independent perspective. And then and then come readdress the question, You know, what is the role of government? And you could ask that in so many different contexts. And so I think for business students, there are so many contexts in which government will affect their lives or their businesses or their careers. What I try to do in that elective is look at these trade-offs at a very broad level across a whole number of different contexts. So I could design an elective, for example, just on housing markets. And there are people that are gonna go into real estate and that would be incredibly valuable valuable. Um, The way the elective is designed is so we do a little bit on housing markets. We do some on labor markets. We do some on financial markets. We talk about how these things are actually all integrated and all interrelated. And so we're giving students a broad foundation and a framework for which to at least understand trade-offs inherent in government interventions and markets. And then on their own, they can go look up more evidence. They can do a deeper dive, but we give them that foundation to be able to do so.
0: Are people surprised that this kind of class exists in, a, in business school? I think sometimes people think of like really transactional stuff. I, I don't know. What, what's the conversation like in the classroom with the students? I would imagine you'd get into some really interesting things.
1: I think they're interesting because I, it, I got it, you know, but uh, so this is the first year uh, I've taught the elective. So we've only had two classes down, but the elective's full, uh, you know, like, you know, there's excess demand for it in some sense. So, you know, I had wondered that myself Uh, but I find that there's a lot of interest in in this elective and not just because it talks about issues of society and government. I I think you're right. We have a section of students. We have a business and public policy um, club. I'm not, something along those lines. A lot of students there are interested in the role of government. We also have an Adam Smith society. And I think a lot of students in the Adam Smith society would be more interested in free markets. I want both of them in the class because both of their views, I think it's important for that exchange of information. I think And there's a lot of interest from both societies in the class but then also consultants like anyone that just wants to go into consulting for their career uh we're talking about markets and what you know what's missing like what is an objective so we'll have a case on housing markets and we'll talk about how housing prices are going up and there's a lack of affordability in some cities is that a role for the private sector what has the private sector not done that it could do you know Uh, So someone that's a consultant could think about what are the opportunities for new, you know, new business design? You know, what is it that the government needs to step in to do, or what could the private sector do on their own? And so these are questions that if all you care about is a career in consulting will be, will be relevant for you.
0: I appreciated your point about having the different perspectives in the room that feels very much in line with what we talk with prospective students about, you know, Darden classroom, bringing all of that background and perspective and having a lot of difference there because the more difference, the, the richer these conversations are. It, exactly it, sounds, right. it sounds like that's been your experience too.
1: Yeah, like I said, I'm two classes in and that seems to be the case. And so I'm hoping that that, that continues.
0: So we'd also talked in the, the prep for this session around a, an elective focused specifically on, on housing markets. Um, this seems like something that you've been interested in perhaps for, for a while. You mentioned being in your PhD program, uh, the financial crisis, Obviously, housing was at the center of that. There's this broader conversation about affordable housing that is really, really picking up, particularly in major cities like the, the one that I'm, I'm, I'm in right now, Washington, D.C. And, and other places uh, that are really challenged by this question. Um, what got you interested in housing?
1: Um, well, I think it's such a big part of households expenditure. You know, about 40% of what we spend is is on housing. It's such an important part of our lives. And, you know, when we get our income, so much goes goes to housing. And so when it's not affordable or we, where people don't have a place to live, it has huge implications. Also, our country is incredibly segregated, And you know, maybe less so than it was in the past, but still very starkly. And so there's not only the ability to afford housing, but can you afford housing in a place where you're going to have access to good education and, and to other good, you know, just amenities and 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 the ability to flourish, I think, is crucially important. Where you're born, independent of your other decisions in life, has huge implications for 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 your life trajectory. And so, housing touches on 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 almost everything. And so that's what got me interested in it. My wife works for Habitat for Humanity here as well. And so, uh, this is we actually met at the Urban Institute. So we met there and went and you know did different things for a while. And, and now. It's interesting how often we talk. She, she has a lot of anecdotal evidence when she meets with clients that she's trying to help get into, get into housing. And I've got of the, the models in the back of my head. And I'm like, does this model correspond to how you see think people are actually behaving? So, um, so, in, so in, that's a long-winded way of saying that's how I got interested in housing. And um, even though a lot of my research focus and what I've taught so far today has been about business cycles and understanding recessions, um, I think a lot of where I'm going forward, I think will be looking at, at, at issues related to housing.
0: So it's interesting to hear about this connection you made with your wife at Urban Institute and your, your shared interests in this kind of housing, um, these housing considerations. Uh, what kind of work did you work on when you were at the Urban Institute? What, were you focused on a particular topic or um, exploring particular things? Just curious. Yeah, I was in,
1: we were both in the income and benefits center uh at, at the urban institute which is fairly broad they think, think about a lot of stuff related to households income and and uh government benefits that they might receive whether it's food stamps we were both working on social security policy primarily um so i was thinking about like how sustainable is is the is is social security in the united states what changes need to be made so that um the social security fund is solvent et cetera, et etc so that's what we were doing back then
0: that feels like a perennial question here. I say this as someone who has uh, two retired parents uh, here in the United States and Social Security. How long will it last? Um, what what stands out from your work on, on that question?
1: Well, I, I haven't worked on kind of the Social Security forecasting models since two thousand seven or so. So I, I, you know, I'm not exactly up to date on the current projections. But uh, I think what stood out was. There's a tension in that something needed to be done to make sure that the that, that this that our system was sustainable. We either needed more contributions to pay for things, to pay for the benefits, or we had to lower benefits, ask people to work longer, or something like that. Um, and those choices are really difficult. I mean, those are really tough, difficult choices to make, and um, they had to be made. Maybe it was the, what stood out to me, I guess, so to speak. I, you know, and there are different views of how they should be made, but but we definitely need to do something.
0: I'm kind of building on, on that, um, and I saw we got a question here related to one of your Ideas to Action articles um, from recently, and we'll, we'll get to that uh, for sure, because this is a co-production between Darden Admissions and Darden Ideas to Action, the thought leadership website uh, that the business school has. But one of the things I know that you're really curious about, really interested in, these sort of larger debt questions uh, for governments, societies. Um, What brought you to um, that that work? What got you interested in that work?
1: Well, a lot of my work on understanding recessions has also been trying to think about how can we mitigate recessions, because they have such devastating consequences. I saw you know, 2008, the implications for a lot of people that were really close to me, it was it, it was fairly personal. And so um, given how scarring recessions can be, a lot of my work has tried to think about what, what can we do to solve that? And I think that there is a growing consensus that government spending can be incredibly effective during a recession. Typically, we, we rely on the central bank to, to be the independent organization that helps manage the business cycle. And that worked quite well from, say, 1980 to 2007. But in 2008, the recession was so big, so deep that monetary policy or the Federal Reserve was kind of limited in how much they could do. They did a lot, they did arguably as much as they could but their tools were still somewhat limited. We needed more government spending and Ben Bernanke said that that as much as himself, my own research I think would be consistent. The, The findings of that would be consistent with that view. The challenge is that when you need more government spending so that you get people employed, there's debt. And we have very high and rising debt in the United States and around the world. And so there's a big concern that we don't wanna add to that debt. And so the the work that I'm I'm now heavily involved in, this is with a co-author here in the econ department at UVA, Eric Young. We asked the following question, how can we preserve the best aspects of monetary policy, which is semi-independent decision-making that can act really quickly to a recession? How do you preserve that? Well, also allow for direct spending in a recession while also trying to limit the accumulation of government debt. And it sounds like something that might be impossible. What we propose is that during normal times, during sort of normal standard run-of-the-mill recessions, central bank does normally what it does, just tries to manage the business cycle. But when we hit a really deep recession, when monetary policy becomes even more challenging, the central bank can, could uh, in principle, effectively print money, give it to the treasury, give it to the government to directly spend. In other words, there's no additional debt uh, brought on by by the Treasury, by our government, because they're basically just taking printed money and using it. And this sounds like a terrible idea to lots of people. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, we're going to be using Bobway or the Weimar Republic, or it just brings up notions of hyperinflation. Um, and so part of our, our work is trying to understand when would this cause too much inflation? At what point, like, is this a good idea? When does it become a bad idea? And what we've concluded is that there's a lot of, bit of ability for, for this sort of a policy to help fight a recession without causing without causing inflation. Um, and so that's that's a recent paper that we've worked on. Anyone that's interested in it can go on our website and, and look it up. Um, I don't wanna to take too much time with the details, but I know that it raises lots of questions that kind of beg for, for more information on the details.
0: Well, it all does sound interesting. I wonder if the COVID uh, disruption, what what happened with the economy, you go back to March 2020 and what we're still very much working through right now, did it provide an interesting context to kind of think about some of these questions related to, to government spending and, and monetary policy?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the government's response to COVID was heavily informed by what happened in 2008. You know, in 2008, now the COVID crisis was a different sort of shock to the economy in some sense. So that means that there might be differences in the optimal response, but nonetheless, I think that there was a view that not enough was done after 2008 that, you know, we had unemployment for almost a decade before it got back to its kind of normal level. Um, And so in response to COVID, the government did a whole lot. You know, they printed a lot of money, they spent a lot of money. Um, And so that previous kind of experience informed the government's response. I've done some of my own research thinking about the COVID crisis and and asking, if you're gonna spend a dollar, let's say the government's gonna spend, What's the best way to spend it? You know, you could imagine different ways to spend a dollar. You could give it to firms, you could give it to households, you give it to certain types of households, you give it to certain types of firms, you could just loan money. Um, There's so many things that can be done and some combination of all of it was done. Um, but one of my recent papers with some co-authors at Berkeley asks, if you're gonna spend a dollar, what's the most efficient or it gives you the most bang for your buck? Because at some point during the COVID crisis, like the economy has to, t- like is gonna to tank to some extent, right? It's a, it's a health crisis and we can't go to restaurants anymore. Um, that's sort of natural. You, you almost can't solve for that with economic policy. That's a health, that's a health crisis. But what you wanna do is prevent the economy from falling even further. And so we ask what sort of government spending or government policies would keep us here until the health crisis recedes as opposed to helping us fall all the way down here.
0: Well, you mentioned if you have to spend a dollar, how, how do you want to spend it? Were there any takeaways um, that you'd want to share? I mean, I, I think we're all interested in this question because there was a very robust debate at least here in the U.S. around the world as to who you give the money to, how you deploy the money. Um, do you employ it through employer deploy it through employers directly too, so people are it's like effectively like getting a paycheck? The U.S., there's all sorts of different things that were, were tried here. Um, thoughts here?
1: Yeah, and I think that the answer to that question, in answering that question, it's it's important to think about uh, answers related to both equity and efficiency. Equity is just like based on our values. Like if someone's suffering, should we give them another dollar? And that's important. What I'm gonna focus on, because our paper focuses more on this, is efficiency. In other words, if the economy should be here, how do we prevent it from going down here? And so in answering this question, I want to acknowledge that there are important equity considerations. But most of our paper is based on efficiency—just how do we keep the macro economy from tanking, which itself helps support equity in, in, in an indirect way. And what we concluded is that giving money to households is, is fine. Um, that's pretty good. And if you're going to give it to households, you want to give it to the lowest income households because they're the ones whose spending plummeted the most, and they're the ones who, therefore, you know, will support the economy back up again. So. It's decent to give, give money to households but what's even more important to low income households is to give money to firms that are on the brink of exit. So let's say that there's a restaurant and they're no longer allowed to provide meals inside the restaurant. So they're not able to cover a lot of their fixed costs. They might shut down even though they could still employ people doing carry out meals. But if their revenues fall below some you know, fall far enough They're going to shut down and they might have a real tough time reappearing in in a few months. And when they shut down, not only are they not employing the people that would have provided the meals in the restaurant, they're also firing people, like I said, that could have provided the meals for carry out or, or whatever else. And when they fire those people, that's what has huge implications for incomes for lots of low income households. So the most effective in terms of bang for your bucks for supporting the economy, but also helping low-income people, is to target those firms that are on the brink of exit. So you don't want it to give it to the biggest corporations that are going to be fine anyway, and you don't want to give it to the firms that are going to exit it. You want to give it to the firms that, with that additional dollar, are going to be able to stay in business, and you just want to transfer that money to them so that they can sustain their employment levels.
0: Do you feel like we have the tools to, to identify those firms? That, that was the question that I was thinking about as, as we were I, talking.
1: That is a big question. And so I think there's more research to be done on the empirical side of this. But, but loosely what we propose is look at firms that are just barely profitable. You know, the firms for which the revenues are just above their costs. And that gives you some sense. You know, we have that from accounting data and from reporting data. So you can find the firms that are sort of on the margin there and you can transfer it to them. And then some people say, well, that's not fair. This firm stayed small and didn't grow big enough on their own volition and now they're getting handed money. Uh, but you could say that about any money that the, that the government hands out. So if you're gonna give a dollar, there's always gonna be some lack of fairness involved in it. And then the question is, okay, well, what's the best way? Let's make our criteria, let's keep the economy from tanking. This would be the best way to do it. If again, you could identify those firms. And I think that there are ways to do it.
0: Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, at the outset, you- and I'm, maybe as you were talking about just the conversations that you're having in some of your classes, that this becomes about sort of values and sort of where, how, not just what you can do, but how you decide what to do. That, that ultimately comes back to values.
1: Yeah, and I think that especially in my elective, that's one thing that that I try to emphasize is when we're talking. It is important to distinguish when we're making a value statement, a statement about fairness or whatever else, versus. An efficiency statement. In other words, if we adopt this policy, everyone will be better off. You know, and those are two different things when evaluating should we adopt a policy or make a decision. I
0: want to come to one of your articles that's on Darden Ideas to Action? Um, it feels like we're on this like just wild roller coaster with with energy prices. Um, you wrote an article, um, gosh, about a year ago. It feels like when oil went negative, you and Elena Lutskina. Um, the energy sector? Has this been something that you just sort of followed? What, what was the inspiration for that article or what, what got you interested in that particular issue?
1: I've been thinking about that issue ever since um, 2008, 2009. Um, when I was back at Michigan, I started doing work trying to understand what caused fluctuations in oil prices. Um, and I think there are lots of reasons to care about that. But one of the reasons was oil is such a big part of our macro economy, So understanding both the causes and consequences of oil price fluctuations is so important for understanding macroeconomics and macroeconomic policy. And so that early research tried to decompose fluctuations in the price of oil into its underlying causes. And at the time between 2000 and 2008, there was a spike in the price of oil. And people thought, is this speculation in oil markets? Are there traders that are driving up the price? Should we regulate these traders? And what my work kind of pointed to was was the fact that, no, a lot of this surge in the price of oil was just global demand. Presumably, uh, you know, from China. China was booming at the time. They had lots of infrastructure projects going on. They are building lots of factories, and very oil-intensive projects. And so, you know, it seems that you know China and just global demand was driving up oil prices. So that was kind of the the, the initial onset of this research. And then I started talking with Elena Lupesina, who does a lot of work in you know more detailed work within financial markets, and we had just noticed this kind of interesting anomaly in financial markets where in 2014, prices plummeted uh, and were expected to rise very quickly soon after. And we wanted to understand how oil firms responded to that. Did they keep oil underneath the ground in anticipation of these higher prices, or did they just start pumping it out at the low prices in order to increase their revenues? Um, And that's how we started looking into that project, and that's kind of what led to that paper.
0: Do you see that as an interest you'll you'll carry forward? I mean, the I was just a little little bit of research in advance of this session, just googling. This is probably dangerous, but just googling uh, global economics news, like what what's going on, and of course, uh, energy markets back in uh, the news now because uh, prices are going up, which is you know in some ways supply and demand. Um, but you're right that it has all these attendant implications for the economy. I mean like one of the twin conversations here related to the rising energy prices is uh, are we heading towards some sort of economic environment and stagflation inflation some kind of thing like it seems to be be part and parcel of this kind of issue
1: Yeah and I think there's a lot that could be said about inflation and, and a lot of other things but one so to, to answer your question like am I going to keep working on this financial Oil market financial work. There's actually a link between what Elena and I did and this COVID project that I've been that, that I was just telling you about. What Elena and I found was that when oil prices fell and they were expected to rise, a lot of firms kept that oil on the ground. They delayed producing oil because, you know, rationally the price was going to rise. And so then they could sell the oil, they could produce the oil later when it did rise. But some very high debt firms, um, actually started pumping out oil because they need to prove reserves to the banks that lend to them. In other words, there are these financial market frictions where banks and the oil producers were not perfectly renegotiating. You know, if you're a bank and you're lending to an oil firm, you might say, look, you know what, leave that oil under the ground for now because you're going to be able to pay us off in the future if you pump it out at a higher price. Our incentives are aligned here. But that renegotiation didn't happen in every, in every circumstance. Fast forward to the COVID crisis, when COVID hit, you might think that restaurants that were about to go out of business, the spots where they're renting their space from would, would lower the rent, right? You might think, you know, if, if I'm renting out, if I have a big uh, commercial space and I'm renting out a lot of space for restaurants, I might lower the rent because I know they're going to shut down otherwise, you know, like this is a big economic crisis. But it appears in retrospect that there were a lot of frictions that prevented, for whatever reason, uh, people from renegotiating lower rents. Uh, for people that were late on their mortgage payments. And a lot of times the government had to impose a you know a mandate uh, that, that people had some freedom to not pay their mortgages back. But you can imagine a scenario in which the private market takes care of that itself. I know it's a recession. If I'm renting a home to someone, I might want to say, look, you have a little bit of a break, because if you move out, it's not clear that someone else is gonna be able to move in and pay me. Everybody's struggling right now. And yet uh, it doesn't appear that those renegotiations happen to the extent you might think they, they should. And so that, that relates to my COVID work. That's why if, if there aren't these renegotiations, it's really important you know, for bang for your buck for the government to give that dollar to the firm that's about to exit because that firm is not able to get that lower rental space that would allow them to stay in business. And so that's a long winded way of saying that work on financial markets is actually very related to some of my other macroeconomic work. And this is the nature of research. You learn that a lot of these things are interrelated, and that's how you then get new research ideas.
0: Well, let's talk about new research ideas. What, what's on your brain right now? What, what are you thinking about as you go forward? I mean, you don't have to tell us tell us too much. I know there are probably some things that are still very much in development, but what kind of questions uh, in the economy and policy are most of interest to you right now?
1: Um, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do three quick ones because uh, I know, so one is what are the effects of, defense, of government spending, defense spending? A lot of the research on that has been how many jobs do you create? Or how much GDP do you get for an additional dollar of spending? Um, but recent data has allowed us to answer that question in a much broader variety of contexts. So what we're looking at, my co-authors and I are looking at now is when the Department of Defense spends on a city, when they give a contract to a city, what happens not only to unemployment there, what happens to inflation, what happens to GDP, what happens to housing prices. We can also look at what happens to marriage rates, divorce rates, the share of people that are in school, um, recipient of welfare payments. Uh, A lot of these other sort of social benefits or social costs, we can see how they respond. And the preliminary evidence is is, is fascinating. Uh, A lot more people have health insurance, a lot of people reduce their dependence on on welfare payments. They get off of disability. Um, They're more likely to stay married, it appears. Uh, We're collecting data right now on on crime rates and mortality rates to see the broader social implications of, of some of this spending. And this has implications, not just beyond Department of Defense spending. It could be whenever, say, maybe one of our prospective students in the future, if they decide, if they're running a company that says, we're gonna build a manufacturing plant in this city. This is a way to say here, here's some suggestive evidence of what some of those implications could be for the people that live there or the people that might move in there. So that's one thing that I'm thinking about. Another is thinking about land taxation. Uh, You know, this is tied into the affordable housing discussion we had before. And I'm starting to look at both data and, and some theory on how different forms of taxing property taxes could actually support affordable housing and meet some other social objectives that we might have in terms of the design of cities and urban areas. Um, so that's the second one. And then, so these are all ones I'm excited about. So I'm sorry to just like throw at you like three completely different things, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to, to making make more progress on this. Another is how can we jointly rationalize asset prices? Um, in other words, if you were to look at interest rates, they're really low right now, and it looks like they're going to stay low, that would suggest that economic growth is going to stay low in some sense. There are some theories that would suggest that if interest rates are low, one potential cause is low expected growth in the economy. At the same time, stock prices are really high. And on average, you would think stock prices high are indicative of expected higher future growth. And so how do we reconcile these things? Um, And I'm working with a co-author from University of California Santa Barbara and then another one from University of Virginia to help think about that.
0: So it sounds like you're busy. You got a lot going on.
1: Aspirationally, I'm busy, yes. But these are all things I'm hoping to be working on.
0: Well, Dan, as as we get closer to the top of the hour here, 11 o'clock is is on the horizon. I've got a couple more questions for you. This one is a fun question we've been asking of all of our office hours guests here. Is there a book or books or podcasts or movie uh, that has been uh, impactful for you uh, during your life or your work?
1: Yeah, so, oh, if you're going to ask my whole life, um, I'll give you my favorite book of all time is Trinity by Leon Uris. Um, I read that as a kid, and based on that, I went and lived in Belfast, Northern Ireland for a few years, and, and that kind of affected a lot of just questions I, I raised in general. Favorite TV show is The Wire, favorite TV show of all time, favorite TV show right now. I, I, I love The Wire. Um, and then in terms of books I'm reading now, I just finished uh, uh, an autobiography, sorry, bi- biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Um, I learned history in high school, but not very well. And this was a great chance to, to learn in a really well done way, uh, more about really important aspect and era and figure in American history. So I'm reading that. And then I finished a book called Say Nothing um, which is about the conflict in Northern Ireland. And because I had lived there, uh, that's been kind of top of mind. So I don't know if that answers your questions, but, but those are a few things.
0: Definitely. All, all great selections. I say that as a fellow Wire fan and Say Nothing is an, <laughs> an incredible book. Um, You've read so, it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, all right, last question for you. And uh, I want to thank all of, all of our attendees for being here for all the great questions. We always get more questions than we can actually uh, speak to here, or pull from the Q&A. Uh, but Dan, last question for you. Why Darden for a prospective student?
1: Darden is going to, I think everything we talked about at the beginning, it's unique. What, were your, what you will get at Darden, you will not get any anywhere else. And what you could get at anywhere else, you'll at least get that at Darden, but you'll get a whole lot more. Um, if you're ready to, if you're really ready to push yourself, engage, learn from other people, help you to, help other people, be part of a community and learn in a, a unique way that I think is, is, is a great way to learn, then, then darn's the place for you and, and there's so many opportunities to find your passion, find what you want to do, learn what you want, what, what you want to learn. I hope it's macroeconomics but it doesn't need to be. Um, but if it is, uh, I'll love to see you guys here.
0: Well Dan, thank you for um, sharing your insights, your expertise, your time with us. Uh, this Friday morning, it's such a treat being part of these office hours conversations. it's It's been so much fun to hear faculty share their stories and talk about their passions and, and their interests and really kind of bring people in uh, to the, the community here and, and get to know the faculty here at, as people. not just, uh, oh, that's the person who teaches the global economies and markets class. this is this is uh, you know Dan's story. This is where he's from. This is how he thinks about the world and what's what he's passionate about. So thank you uh, for for being here today. And that was my interview with Dan Murphy, a member of the Global Economies and Markets faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.